We're going to continue making our way through Acts, and tonight we're going to look at one of the most famous passages in Scripture. It's the conversion of one of the apostles. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, uh, is converted in this passage as somebody who was on his way to persecute Christians. He hated Christians, and he is radically transformed. And one of the things we believe in RUF is that God can change anyone. He can change our nature. He can change what we live for. And I hope that you might believe a little bit more after you leave tonight that God can even work in you. No matter what today has looked like, no matter what this week has looked like, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is one of grace and it is powerful enough even for those that you think are the furthest away from God. And so the Apostle Paul thought this story was so important, he actually tells it what happens, and then he tells it two times in the book of Acts. So we have it recorded for us three times, and so I'm going to read uh, from Acts chapter 9, but I'm going to pull from other times when he references it. So why don't I read this and pray, and we'll get started. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, Lord I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you give us rain um, when we need it. Thank you for giving us jackets and clothes, a warm, dry room to sit in, to fellowship, to laugh, to hear from your word. And we ask that you would show us Jesus. Uh, we pray this every week, but unless you give us eyes, unless you dig out for us ears, we will miss him. And so we ask that you would do this for us by your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this passage is about conversion, conversion of St. Paul. And well, it begs the question, what is conversion? In 2005, I swapped from PCs to Macs. In 2015, I moved from Macs to Chromebooks. Uh, I jokingly sort of refer to my love of all things Google as asking Google into my heart. Uh, at its most basic level, every real born-again Christian has been converted. What does it mean? We see before us tonight, the Apostle Paul is converted, but we're forced to ask this question, is his experience the normal Christian experience? Should we expect to be blinded and kicked off of our horses? It's a silly question, but it begs the question, then what else in this passage should we expect for us if we would know his God? Conversion is not merely deciding that something is better than something else. One operating system is better than another. Christianity is better than another religion. That's not what conversion is. That's not what the Bible is getting at. See, conversion is not merely a new allegiance. It involves change. It's a renovation. Maybe you've converted a room. Think more like changing a home office and turning it into a nursery. It's not a new allegiance. It's still a room, but it is different. It functions differently. Its purpose is different. There is a renovation that takes place. And what conversion in the Bible refers to is a heart renovation, a changing from one nature to another, one way of doing things to another, old capacities and new capacities. Ephesians 2 says that humanity, human nature, is by nature enemies of God, by nature vessels of wrath. That is, we're born with a nature that is hostile to our Maker. And that nature has to be renovated, changed, converted into something else. To have peace with God is not merely, of course it is, it's not merely to have an allegiance to God. It's to have a heart that beats for Him. To have a nature that was once hostile to Him that now is affectionate to Him. There's a lot in this passage that we shouldn't necessarily expect for ourselves. So what should we expect? If we're to be friends with God, what should we expect? A personal encounter with Jesus, for one, where we begin to surrender to Him and obey Him in faith. And so what I want to do with this passage is I want to look at Paul in three different sort of scenarios. And I keep calling him Paul because he also goes by Paul in the New Testament. So if you see Saul and you think, why does he keep calling Saul Paul? He goes by both names and Paul is the familiar one. 
So Paul, before, during, and after his encounter with Jesus. Before. We look at the first two verses. Saul, still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest, he asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The context is pretty important. He's just recently come off of doing something like this. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, maybe you've seen St. Stephen's Church, that's this Stephen. Uh, Paul has overseen his stoning, his murder, because he says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So he's just had him stoned. He's getting warmed up. He's breathing murderous threats. And here's, the, here's what he's doing. I will kill people who follow Jesus, so help me God. He's sworn to God. This is a religious endeavor. And he's not sexist either. He's equal opportunity. Men and women, he's going to take and bind them and throw them in prison. He's going to kill some if he gets the opportunity. He makes threats and he acts on these threats. And somehow, this wild animal of a man is tamed. His nature is changed. Calvin comments like this. He says, Whereas such a cruel wolf was not only turned into a sheep, but did also put on the nature of a shepherd, the wonderful hand of God did show itself therein manifestly. This sheep, I mean, this, this wolf becomes a sheep, and not just a wolf, but a shepherd. Not just a sheep, but a shepherd to sheep. How does this happen? Well, he's on his way. He's going to Damascus. And suddenly a light shines around him. He hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What is it that brings this kind of change in Paul? It's that God graciously crashes into his life. Knocks him off his horse. We read he's blinded. God graciously, life-savingly, but violently crashes into his life. Notice, Paul is not offered a chance to make a decision for Jesus here. What's happening is far more profound. He violently, Jesus knocks him off his horse and he blinds him. The Apostle John writes several books as well in the New Testament. He writes Revelation and in Revelation 1, he writes this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. The Apostle John is called the Beloved Apostle 
Uh, he's the one at the Last Supper where he's literally reclining on Jesus' chest. His head is on Jesus' chest. He and Jesus were quite close. Probably he was Jesus' best friend on earth. And when Jesus confronts him in this passage, John thinks it is death for him. I fell at his feet as though dead until Jesus essentially says, don't be afraid. I died for you. I died for your sins. You know that you are unholy and do not deserve to stand before me as I am. But I was raised for you. We are friends. And what does John have to do with anything? Here's what John has to do with this. Friends of God tremble when they see the risen Jesus in his fully glorified state. His friends his best friend trembles and he thinks it is death. How much more his enemies? Because Paul knows in this moment, this I'm sure of, that he is not on friendly terms with the one speaking to him. Jesus is not his friend in this moment. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. By your very nature, Saul, we are enemies. And Paul is learning very quickly that the Jesus he has heard of is exactly who everyone claimed that he was. He's also finding that to persecute his followers is to persecute Jesus himself. Again, one of the themes in the book of Acts is that there is a mystical, profound union between Jesus Christ and his people. In some ways, mysteriously, they become one. Jesus so identifies with his people that he says, when you hurt my people, you hurt me. When you persecute them, you persecute me. You cannot have me and not my people. You cannot hurt my people and not have me. And this fits with all of what we've been seeing in the book of Acts so far. That Christians act and speak for Jesus because he's so united to them. That's why the Bible calls them his body. How are we united to him? By faith alone. That he is who he says he is. That the death he died for sins is for us. That we might be forgiven. That his resurrection is for our right standing with God. That our good deeds cannot accomplish this. It is by faith alone, apart from works of law. Later when Paul tells this story, he says, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What is a goad? It's such a weird word. Why have we not found a more modern word in our modern translations? A goad is a, is a long stick with a point that you would use to jab an animal to get it to go in the direction you want it to go. Not unlike what spurs are used for on cowboy boots. You know, yeah, go that way. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does this mean? Paul's conversion comes to a head, to a culmination in this passage. But Jesus has been following him, pursuing him for some time. And when, God, when he pursues you, 
it is hard and painful and ultimately futile to run away from him. God wins every time. You cannot resist his will. And I don't know what this is like, and maybe you know what this is like. That nagging thought in the back of your mind that you can't shake, that maybe Jesus is who he says he is. That didn't seem to bother you so much six months ago or a year ago, but now it's like getting bigger and bigger. It's not even in your subconscious. Jesus is haunting me. How has Jesus been pursuing Paul? Paul and Jesus spent time in the temple at the same time. I wonder, we've got nothing in Scripture that says this definitively, I wonder if they were there at the same time. Do you think they ever met? If they never met, do you think they ever locked eyes when Jesus had one of his standoffs with the Pharisees whom Paul was studying with? And if not that, surely he heard of the miracles that Jesus was doing. When Paul had Stephen stoned, he heard the gospel proclaimed clearly. And even when Stephen was dying, his last words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I wonder if those words rang out in Paul's ears as he was falling asleep at night. Don't hold this sin against them. Sin, they're the sinners. I don't know. When Jesus changes your nature, he changes how you relate to him, how you think about him. He's no longer escapable. And if you want peace with God for yourself or if you long for it with others, what is required, what has to happen is that a nature, a sinful nature has to be changed. A new nature has to be given. Now the old nature this is another sermon, but you still sort of hang on to that. Christians have two natures, a heart that beats for God and a heart that runs from Him. God never lets us escape. How do we run from God? Maybe you used to be able to ignore your conscience on certain things. Maybe you used to be able to cheat on an exam and never think twice about it. And now it's like, ah, now it's sort of nags in the back of my mind. I can't escape this. He might be close. Or maybe you're realizing that the intellectual questions that you pose against Christianity aren't as deep to you as you think. They're just reasons. They're hiding behind living and doing what you want to do. He might be close. See, Jesus has been pursuing Paul for some time. Jesus always finds those he pursues. Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And the point of this passage, and we see it all over the scriptures, is that conversion, this miracle, this miraculous work that happens in us when we believe in Jesus is God's work. God does this work. We read in verse 15 that Paul says, Ananias, Paul is my chosen instrument those whom God chooses he gets Jesus says in John 6 no one he, no one comes to me unless the father draws him in John 15 Jesus says you have not chosen me but I have chosen you and appointed you Romans 3 tells us that no one seeks after God in their natural state and it's a categorical statement because then he says, no, not one. 
No human being naturally looks for God. Acts 16 tells us that God opens our hearts. 1 John 4 tells us that we love God because He loved us first. Over and over again, you see this language of what it looks like for Jesus to pursue His people, chase them down, draw them to Himself. One of my favorite passages is in 2 Corinthians 4. It's, it's this Paul, the one who is blinded. He's writing and he says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God shines a light in our hearts, just like the one I saw on the road to Damascus. And that light is the glory of God. And where is the glory of God found? In the face of Jesus. It's just like what he's writing, what he's experiencing here. When God created the world, he said, let there be light. And when God creates a heart that beats for him, he says, let there be light in their hearts or blinding their eyes, as the case was for Paul. And do you know what this means? If Jesus pursues you, if he tracks you down, if he pulls you to himself, even kicking and screaming sometimes, what it means is he will never let go of you. Try to run from him. You might go through a season where it seems to work for you, but you won't be able to get away. Maybe you're in one of those seasons now, a hard season, where when no one's looking, you run from him. And you're trying. And it was working, but now you just feel guilty. Are you guilt-stricken? What do you do to try to make yourself feel better? How do you try to atone for your own sins? Do you try to feel bad enough for the things that you've done? Maybe cry, real tears, or I'm going to prove that I can get back to God. I'm going to read my Bible and it's like working for it. Or do you tell yourself that the guilt you feel is a social construct? It's not real at all and it'll go away if you can just keep going in that direction. It's hard to kick against the goads. Stop. Turn to Jesus. Look to him in faith and rest. Rest from your running, rest from your working, rest from trying to fix yourself. Look to him. There's no need to kick against the goads. You see, the God of the Bible is so much bigger than we think he is, and his, his grip on his people is so much firmer and more secure than we think that it is. Because he so identifies with his people. We have peace with this God by faith. And when he finds us, and we finally yield to the goads, we call this faith. And faith springs out of a converted heart, a renovated heart, a heart that God has spoken in and said, let there be light, let this be used for something else. Here is a heart that will beat for me. And the response is, faith. If you've been in the church for a long time and you don't remember 
when this conversion happened for you, that's fine. Sometimes people want you to sort of say like, what was the date? What was the time? If you can't think of the date and time, it can't be real. The Bible doesn't talk like that. Paul's experience, he knows the date and the time. There's no mistaking it. But the question the Bible keeps asking is, is there faith in your life? Are you returning to Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus? Not do you know when maybe you first started doing that. Like now, what about now? Is your heart renovated? Do you have faith? Do you trust that, the, that Jesus died for you and was raised for you? Is he still pursuing you? Because God is always pursuing his people. A side note. If you wrestle with your role in evangelism or how to talk about Jesus, this should give you so much freedom. It is not your job to renovate somebody else's heart. It is not your job to make light shine in somebody else's heart. But maybe God will graciously use someone like you to show somebody the Jesus who shines light. To show somebody the Jesus who pricks with goads. Graciously. Kindly. So we've seen Paul before his encounter with Jesus, or the initial encounter, and then during his encounter. Very briefly, what about after? The first thing we see is that Paul actually begins to obey the Jesus that he hated. We see that um, in verse 6. But what might not be quite so obvious is um, his relationship to the church changes. And by that, I don't mean he just stops like killing church members and he stops chasing them down and arresting them. He actually enters the church himself. I mean, and this is crazy. I mean, it'd be like a politician sort of saying, I hate rich people in country clubs, and then like they go and put in like a 50000 deposit on a country club membership. Like, wait, do you hate that or do you not hate it? I hate the church. I hate Christians. I'm going to be baptized and become one. Like, what's happening? He's either a hypocrite or he has a totally new nature. And you know what this, this passage is saying, right? It's a new nature. Jesus, here's the thing. Jesus speaks to Saul, to Paul. He says, why are you persecuting me? He shines this bright light. And then he could have said, when he says, who are you? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And, and you should stop that. And here's your sight back. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, you should stop that. Here's your sight back. He says, go to, go to Ananias. And he's going to tell you what to do. And then he's led by the hand, you know, blind. He's not eating. And Ananias doesn't want to go. And the point is, Saul, you need the very institution that you've been persecuting. You need the church. And so Ananias goes and he, he prays for him and his, his sight is restored. And then Paul is baptized. He joins the church. And I think this is why we can't baptize ourselves. It's passive. Be baptized. We, none of us baptized ourselves. If you baptize yourself, talk to me after this. You should not do that. We're going to do this the right way. Um, that's why we can't do this to ourselves. We need other people to lead us into the church. 
And if Jesus has pursued you, if he is pursuing you, his pursuit of you won't be complete until you see your need for the church. Just like Paul. But here's the point. If he's changing you, running from him becomes futile. Your need for the church becomes obvious. And you begin to have desires that are consistent with Jesus' desires. Desires to see the kingdom come. Desires to become a part of how Jesus brings that kingdom in the life of others. And the only way to do that is to look to Jesus, to receive him, and trust that he will change you and grow you in that change through his word, through his people, for his glory and for your good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the ways that you changed him when it certainly seemed like he was the last candidate to become a Christian. And we pray that for those of us who feel like we are unlikely candidates, that you would dig out for us ears, that we would hear it, that we would go home and it would ring in our ears. It's hard to kick against the goads. Help us to come home to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing.